Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Here with Kristen Dumay, and I'm so excited that you are joining us for Summer Mixtape. Kristen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, if you don't know uh, Kristen and her work, this is Dr. Kristen Cobes Dumay. I said that wrong. We just No, no, you got it. Kristen Cobes Dumay. It's a hard one. Uh, And she's a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She has written extensively all over the place, Washington Post, NBC News, RNS, Christianity Today, The Daily Beast. She's been interviewed on NPR, CBS, BBC, among many other outlets. And her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen, I mean this when I say this. This is, uh, I think, one of the most important books I've read in the last decade. Um, it, uh, it was not an easy read um, because it is uh, so revealing, I think, and, and I'm going to talk about later. I love that you are someone who you bring all the receipts, right? Like you, you, you make the claims and you back them up, and it's just so well-cited, so well-researched. You're obviously a doctor and a historian, so I wouldn't expect anything less, but uh, I'm just so thankful for this work, and I can't wait to talk with you more about it. But before we do that, would you give us just a little bit of background, a little bit of kind of your story? Sure. Yeah, I um, grew up in northwest Iowa in a small town, Sioux Center, uh, in a pretty conservative Christian enclave. Uh, It was settled by uh, Dutch immigrants. And so I grew up in the Dutch reformed tradition. My dad is an ordained minister and theology professor at Dort University. And so I I grew up really fairly isolated in that space. I didn't grow up identifying as an evangelical at all. I, I kind of grew up identifying over against American evangelicals. We were distinct. We were, we were special. Uh, we were smarter <laughs> in the, our little Dutch reform tradition. And, um, and, and so that's, that's really how I, I identified. And, um, it wasn't really till I got to graduate school, um, I ended up studying, uh, going to graduate school to study history, mostly because um, I just had so many questions. I felt I didn't know much at all. I had been an exchange student in Germany my senior year in high school, and that experience really made me curious about my own upbringing, my own, um, uh, my own culture, um, my own country. And so um, I, I majored in history in, in, in German in college. I was also pre-med trying to keep my options open, very undecided. And I, I ended up choosing history because of this question of just feeling like I needed to understand things better. Um, so I went off to study uh, religious and intellectual history at the University of Notre Dame, because I thought that was the history that most mattered. Yeah. And it was there that I met real evangelicals, like card-carrying evangelicals. These guys, my, my classmates were coming from Wheaton College, from Moody Bible Institute, from Bob Jones University, right? These were real evangelicals. <laughs> and so um, we were all there to study with George Marsden, a historian of American evangelicalism. Uh, but that's where I realized, um, I started to really think about this, this nature of evangelicalism and, and how I fit with it. Because on the one hand, I didn't have their stories. I didn't know their institutions at all. I was coming from a very different place. 
But the points of connection really were the popular culture. Because although I grew up in this very distinctive reformed subculture um, in Northwest Iowa, we had one bookstore in my small town and it was a Christian bookstore. Um, I grew up only listening to CCM, right? To Christian radio, Christian music. And, um, and so that's where I could really connect with my evangelical classmates. It was through the popular culture. And I, um, in graduate school, then I um, was exposed to the study of cultural history as well, to the study of gender. Um, my first semester there, I read my first book in women's history and gender history. And immediately, like that week, switched my study from religious and intellectual history to uh, religion and gender, because I saw that I, I selected religious and intellectual history because I thought that was the history that mattered most that really motivated people. And as soon as my eyes were open to gender history and how gender operates in history, I knew, no, 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 this is the history that really matters. This is the history that I want to explore. And that really set me on this path um, that, that follows pretty clearly, I think, to Jesus and John Wayne. My first book was a history of Christian feminism, yeah. um, kind of, you know, exploring this kind of autobiographical question of, I grew up hearing that feminism and Christianity were uh, in opposition. And then I studied U.S. history, and I realized that many feminists were um, uh, evangelicals, and many evangelicals were feminists. And so it was a, a book exploring that tension. And, and then um, Jesus and John Wayne is kind of the next logical step there. So I'm, I teach now at Calvin University. I'm uh, a member of the Christian Reformed Church still, uh, and uh, have, have I consider it a privilege to do the kind of work that I do in a Christian academic space and with the full support of, of my institution. Oh, that's awesome. What a story. Um, I love that you were like, even you were like super evangelical almost or like up and above evangelicals growing up. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so like I said, this book's so important. Um, we actually already gave away a copy leading up to this week. We're going to give away another copy on the Zoom that we do right after the Zoom discussion that I'll host with anybody who wants to come right afterwards. Um, but I want to kind of ask you this, this, this kind of big question that I think uh, dives into the main topic of the book. And that is that Jesus and John Wayne is really centered around the discussion of something that you call militant masculinity. And here's what you say in the opening chapter. Viral, aggressive men could hardly be expected to submit themselves to such an emasculating faith. And so in the 1910s, Christian men set out to re-masculinize American Christianity, seeking to offset the, quote, womanly, womanly virtues that had come to dominate the faith, um, in their opinion. They insisted that Christianity was also, quote, essentially masculine, militant, and warlike. It was time for men to take back the church. So like I said, you, you bring all the receipts, you, you know, all of the background of it. How did white evangelicals come to so fully embrace this militant masculinity? And why is that such a big deal and a, a big problem? Yeah, so I was first kind of uh, clued into this topic in the early 2000s. Uh, I was teaching a class at Calvin. And I wanted to introduce my students to the study of gender in history, just like I had I had discovered in graduate school. And so in just a US survey course, I included a lecture on Teddy Roosevelt. 
And I wanted to show them how for Roosevelt, you know, gender wasn't just this private matter, um, but it was linked to economic shifts. It was linked to um, the U.S. military, to American empire, to race, to religion. And, you know, he was this rough rider and um, uh, you know, recreated himself in the American West. And so I put together this little lecture and, and right after class, two guys came up to me from the class and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book that you have to read. And it was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and Eldridge, uh, you know, that book was enormously popular back then. Um, it would go on to sell more than 4 million copies. And uh, so I, I took their advice, bought a copy at the local family Christian bookstore and you know, opened it up. And sure enough, right in the beginning, it's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And Eldridge goes on to sketch this very militant, militaristic conception of quote unquote Christian masculinity. God is a warrior God. Every man has a, a battle to fight and uh, a beauty to rescue. <laughs> and so uh, I, I was intrigued and I started reading around. Um, this was around 2005, 2006. The book had published in 2001. It was already hugely popular. Um, and, and I saw that this was just the tip of the iceberg, right? Because of the success of that book, there were dozens of other books that were also sketching this very militant, militaristic conception of Christian masculinity. And um, as a historian, I wanted to um, I wanted to know where this came from, uh, and also I wanted to explore what it was doing uh, because this was in 2005, um, 2006, um, the early years of the Iraq War, and uh, what we were seeing at that time was all of the survey data that was coming our way that just showed that white evangelicals were so much more likely to support that war enthusiastically, um, to really push support for that war to um, support preemptive war in general, to condone the use of torture, embrace aggressive foreign policy. Like we had all this data coming at us. And so I just asked as historians had done of Teddy Roosevelt, you know, what might one have to do with the other? Hmm. So that, that sparked this project years ago. And, um, and then um, I wanted to trace the history. I wanted to see where this came from. And so in Jesus and John Wayne, I, I do go back to the 19th century ever so briefly. And, and that leads up to the section that you read. And I do that not so much to, to chart continuity, but instead to show change over time. I think that's one of the really important things that history does for us is it, it shows that things have not always been the way they are now. And conservative Protestants did not always hold these views on masculinity or on foreign policy or on uh, Christian nationalism. So in the book, I, I just glance back to the 19th century and I do that to show that there was a time when most evangelicals thought that Christian masculinity meant exhibiting self-restraint, right? This kind of Victorian model of you work against your impulses. Um, although in the American South, there was a, a more militaristic version, kind of this honor culture, uh, which was white patriarchal authority um, to enforce order over women, children, and enslaved people. So you have, you have the tension. It's in the early 20th century, the time of Teddy Roosevelt, that you have this kind of mutual embrace, North and South, um, across American Christianity too, to, to embrace, uh, to reject this, this model of Victorian self-restraint and gentlemanly Christian manhood and embrace a more rugged masculinity. And that's a, a critical moment. Um, but even then things don't quite look the way they do now, because then you have liberal Protestants who are even more likely to embrace this muscular Christianity than conservative Protestants were. And when you, when you go look at world war one, 
there too, you have liberal Protestants who are more likely to be gung-ho, you know, U.S. war, militarism than conservative Protestants. You certainly had some like Billy Sunday who were all in for the war. Uh, And uh, at the same time, you had conservative Protestants who said, uh, who were pacifists. Uh, you had conservative Protestants who said America is not a Christian nation. To be Christian means having your soul saved and no nation is Christian. And plus look around you, right? <laughs> like America is not a Christian nation. Um, it's, it's, it's filled with sin. And so that was really important to me just to sketch out that things used to look quite different. And so the things that we take for granted now, what it is to me, be a Christian or patriotic or, you know, um, uh, what is Christian masculinity? These things came into shape in the 20th century. Okay. So that's where I I really kind of start in. And it's in the 1940s that the story starts to come together. Uh, First, in the case of um, uh, the Second World War and the formation of the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942, and the key role that Billy Graham starts to play in, um, in kind of building this new evangelical identity. So in the 1940s, National Association of Evangelicals forms because uh, they felt that conservative Protestants were doing great things, but they had been scattered and their influence had been diluted in the wake of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And so they want to band together and they have great plans. And I talk about this in the book, like they, they want to have magazines with subscribers in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. They want to take to the airwaves. They want to have Christian bookstores across the country. Like they have this plan and what's really crazy is within 15 years they accomplish it all right and Billy Graham is right at the center of this and he becomes a symbol of neo-evangelicalism of this new modern engaged face of evangelicalism he also really rises to prominence as an evangelist during the second world war and when you look at his youth for Christ um uh uh activities and and in his evangelism in that context it's incredibly patriotic um nationalistic right and then by the late 40s world war ii is done but we're immediately into the cold war context and that's where things really start to coalesce and so we see conservative evangelicals like billy graham embrace uh cold war militarism and they see that they're, they already believe that they are the most faithful representatives of American Christianity, right? Um, that's a kind of a consistent theme for evangelicals. Um, and, and now they see that they also have this really important role to play in the nation because Christian America is under threat because communism is anti-God anti-American and anti-family, all the things that they hold most dear. And so they think that they have this really important role to protect Christianity, to protect the family, which they understand um, to entail traditional gender roles, meaning gender difference, men and women, very separate roles, almost opposite roles. Um, And that's part of God's um, plan for the family, for society, for the nation, for the church. Um, And that's under siege. And they have to protect Christian America. And the way to do that, it's an active military threat. It's a military defense. And all these things fit together because what do you need for a strong military defense? You need strong men to fight, to protect faith, family, and nation. Now, this all makes sense, right? This all kind of comes together in the early Cold War era, the late 40s, early 50s. But the thing is, in holding all of these values dear, they're not very different from most other Americans, certainly not different from white middle-class Americans, right? This is 
post-war baby boom. Uh, this is the Cold War consensus era. And so just as their plan is to assert themselves in American culture, to move to the center of things, they find it pretty easy to do that because their values are aligned with the values of so many other Americans. And so in the 1950s, we see Billy Graham, good friends with President Eisenhower in and out of the White House, right? We see evangelicals asserting their leadership on the national stage and feeling very much at the center of things. Yeah. So things are going great. <laughs> until the 1960s, right? In the 1960s, this all starts to fall apart because a lot of other Americans start to question these core values. We have the rise of the feminist movement, uh, questioning traditional family values, if you will. Um, we have the civil rights movement, which is uh, really uh, destabilizing the status quo in the American South. And that's populated by a whole lot of white evangelicals, right? And so um, we also see the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement, and that in particular challenges notions of American goodness. I mean, as is the civil rights movement at its core, um, but also American greatness, because what's happening on the battlefields of Vietnam, right? It's hard to justify. And you have these news reports coming home every evening into people's you know, family rooms on the television. So a lot of Americans start to question American goodness, American greatness. And, um, and this is when evangelicals double down on all these values. And this is when they become oppositional values rather than finding themselves at the center of American culture. They see themselves as this faithful remnant opposing many other Americans, but think it is their God ordained duty to do so. And again, all of these things fit together. And um, so this is when we see the emergence of family values, evangelicalism right? But we have to understand family values evangelicals in, evangelicalism in this historical moment, um, because what we see is these family values are the authority of parents to make decisions for their children. Authority is a huge, huge question for evangelicals during this time. You have people like James Dobson, right? Writing a lot about discipline and authority over your kids, keeping the government out of your family and out of this chain of, of command, really. Now, in this context, what is he talking about? One of the things he's talking about is uh, essentially the authority of white parents, right, to make decisions for their children, but not necessarily the authority of black parents to make decisions for their kids, because the context here is school desegregation. And so a lot of evangelicals who are talking about the authority of parents are really talking about the authority of white parents. And in fact, this is where we do see that the Christian school movement emerge as um, you know, white flight academies to oppose uh, racial um, desegregation. Um, and so you have that going on. You have um, in this context also the opposition to feminism, opposition to women's rights. And, and so you have a lot of uh, literature coming from evangelicals at this point, sold in Christian bookstores, how to be a Christian woman. Mm -hmm. And it is to be submissive. It is to be sweet. It is, it is to be um, not masculine. And what does it be to be, a, what does it mean to be a Christian man? To be assertive, to assert your authority over women, to be a leader. And it is to be, um, to be tough mm -hmm. um, because we clearly more than ever now, more than ever need strong masculine men, because look what's happening on the battlefields in Vietnam. Something has gone terribly wrong. And we have this emasculated 
culture uh, that and feminists are to blame here and anti-war activists and liberals right all these they are destroying american men and so we cannot fight to defend our country and our faith anymore against this very real threat right? this language is everywhere when you look at what evangelicals are writing what evangelicals are saying i mean you can read evangelical sex manuals from the 1960s and 70s and i did and they are a thing and they sold millions of copies really oh my gosh i mean advice to women um you know even most intimate advice goes back to these overarching like national themes of a woman needs to please her husband sexually in order to build up his ego so that he has the strength necessary to lead his family and his nation in this you know cold war context like it's very explicit it was really quite startling i didn't have to like put a lot of pieces together it's there you know staring us in the face so that's a really that's just the the critical historical moment um to understand how these values all come to together so tightly in the Cold War era and in opposition to um, to other Americans and to other American Christians um, and including some evangelicals. You have this, this minority movement, the evangelical left consistently throughout this period saying no, to follow Christ is to, uh, to empower women alongside men. To follow Christ is, is to reject militarism to reject this grasping for power um you have that voice all along but it is always a minority voice right and so the book then traces the history of this connection between evangelical masculinity and militarism in both religion and politics um, for the next several decades. It looks at the rise of the religious right. It looks at uh, you know, the, the presidency of, of Ronald Reagan. If you're wondering where John Wayne comes in, uh, John Wayne is this, this perfect uh, kind of symbol. Because when I was looking at books like Wild at Heart all those years ago, one of the first things that struck me is that for all their talk of being Bible-believing Christians, right, that's evangelical self-identity, uh, these books on Christian masculinity didn't have a lot of um, biblical um, uh, expertise, really, like a few Bible verses, like ripped out of context, that, that's all. Instead, they were looking to secular heroes for models of quote unquote, Christian manhood um, to people like the actor John Wayne, like John Wayne just kept popping up and you know, John Wayne was not an evangelical. John Wayne was not a model of moral values, if you know anything about him. But what we do know is that he, through his on-screen persona, and then also through his politics, he came to symbolize during this critical era, 1960s, 1970s, this um, kind of retrograde masculinity, American power, white masculine power, white patriarchal power that would bring order through violence, usually by subduing non-white populations. So Native Americans, the Japanese in the sands of Iwo Jima, the Mexicans in the Alamo, right? There's a consistent theme here. And so he emerged as an icon of conservative American manhood. And, and that's why he keeps popping up in these evangelical um, books as well. They also love Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. I could have titled the book that with that too. It just didn't quite have the same ring to it. Um, so so that, was, that was really striking to me, right? That they were looking to secular models for the, the source of this militant conception of masculinity. And it really makes perfect sense if you think about it, because what does the Bible have to say to us about, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian man 
or more simply, what does it mean to be Christian? Right. What is, what does Jesus have to say to us? What does the model of Christ have to offer us? Well, it is that, um, you know, we should love our neighbors as ourselves, that we should love our enemies. We should turn the other cheek. You know, we could look at the Beatitudes. Uh, we could look at the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? There was a time when these, again, 19th century self-control was a key piece of what it meant to be a Christian man. That didn't fit with this more, with this, this new kind of warrior masculinity, not at all. Like the fruit of the spirit that gets defined as, as feminine traits. So that's great for the ladies, but you need strong, rugged men who will not be constrained by those virtues to defend faith, family, and nation. And that's why somebody like John Wayne is a much better model than a man who has been deeply formed by traditional Christian virtue. And this yeah. is clearly a theme that I, that I trace, you know, all the way up to um, very recent politics. Uh, you can hear a lot of echoes in terms of evangelical support for somebody like Donald Trump also not an evangelical, also not deeply uh, formed by traditional Christian virtue, but precisely because of that, he was, as evangelicals called him, their ultimate fighting champion, the man who could protect Christianity, who would do what needed to be done, the ends would justify the means. And so this is a thread that we can see that runs throughout American history and throughout the history of American evangelicalism over the past 75 years or so. So the book tells that story. Um, it, it takes, I think, a, a little interesting detour through the 1990s. Um, that's kind of my favorite decade, the most interesting chapter in some ways for me, because that's when we see this uh, rise of the evangelical men's movement, the promise keepers movement. I know a lot of evangelical men have personal connections to that part of the story. And, um, and that was interesting because that's when we see that things are up for grabs. And that's when we see that um, it, things really feel in that moment that, that, um, that history could take a different turn. We could be moving in a different direction because although you have persisting kind of patriarchy, uh, you also have a lot of experimentation with um, egalitarianism, even within Promise Keepers. Um, the Cold War has come to an end by the 1990s. So these old frameworks seem like we need something new. And so a lot of evangelicals are experimenting with new foreign policy, focusing on global poverty, uh, focusing on the persecution of Christians globally. They're, they're you know, saying that feminism is here to stay and maybe that's not such a bad thing. And maybe we need a new kind of politics. Racial reconciliation moves to the center of, of the movement, not without considerable opposition, however. And so it's by the end of that decade that we see a growing backlash against these more progressive experiments uh, within American evangelicalism and within the evangelical men's movement. And that brings us to 2001, because in 2001, uh, we have a number of new books appearing. Wild at Heart is published that year, right? This aggressive warrior masculinity. James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys, all about testosterone, right? You need to embrace that, not stifle it. Doug Wilson's Future Men, you know, very militant, militaristic, misogynistic conception of Christianity, Christian masculinity. All these books are on the shelves of Christian bookstores when terrorists strike in on September 11, right? And so that just propels this, this re uh, kind of radicalized militant conception of Christian masculinity. Every man needs a battle to fight. 
we had the battle. It was very clear, right? And so this literature on evangelical masculinity ends up fueling not just the aggressive foreign policy that I had been aware of when I first encountered this, um, but also a really virulent Islamophobia mm -hmm. and, um, and ends up really taking hold within American evangelicalism and beyond. Right. And, and that's a pretty clear trajectory then through the um, uh, uh, presidency of Barack Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, where we can see this increased um, uh, radicalization and this us versus them mentality, um, increased militancy, which brings us up to 2016 when conservative white evangelicals are then primed, uh, feeling beleaguered, feeling uh, endangered, you know, religious liberties, demographic changes, um, and really feeling that, um, you know, some of them that they had no choice and needed this, this rugged protector who would do what needed to be done at all costs to protect them, to protect their privilege, uh, to protect their version of, of Christianity and Christian America. Um, so I, I guess as a takeaway, one of the, um, one of the key um, findings, that, uh, conclusions that I came to in this research was um, coming to an understanding of the relationship between militancy and fear. Mm, yeah. Because in 2016, when a lot of evangelicals and outside observers were trying to come to terms with this strong and enthusiastic evangelical support for Donald Trump, a lot of people were saying, well, evangelicals are just so afraid, right? I mean, I just, just explained that narrative. Yeah. So afraid, what choice did they have? But they were, they were just pushed into the arms of somebody like Donald Trump. Um, and, and that makes sense to a certain uh, degree. But when I looked at the history, when I looked at the story of Thomas Road Bap uh, Baptist Church um, and Jerry Falwell Sr., when I looked at Mars Hill and, and Mark Driscoll, when I looked at the story of all these like fake um, ex-Muslim terrorists, right? That were all the rage on the Christian speaking circuit long after they were all exposed as total frauds. I realized that we needed to flip that script. That evangelical militancy isn't always or even primarily the response to evangelical fears, mm. but that evangelical militancy requires the continual stoking of fear, right? And so you have leaders who actively stoke fear in the hearts of their followers, Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, Mark Driscoll, right? Over and over again, the leaders of the religious right, um, you can see that this is very intentional, stoking fear so that the fear is real. The fear is very real in the hearts of followers, um, but they are doing that in order to consolidate their own power, right? Because they then promise to be the strong man, to come in and to offer protection. So you need to be very afraid of the outsider. You need to be very afraid of the immigrant. You need to be very afraid of even the people in the Christian church right down the street, right? And so this us versus them mentality that fuels militancy and that drives extremism. And it's, it really is all done to consolidate the power of the leaders who are stoking these fears. And I think when that clicked for me at a certain point in my research, after seeing case after case, the, the entire book kind of, uh, fell into place. And um, I think I'll, I'll wrap it up with that and we can uh, uh, address some other questions. I think ultimately Jesus and John Wayne is, the, is a book about power, the uh, book about the relationship between Christianity and power, what it is and maybe what it ought to be. Hmm, Kristen, that's amazing. Um, 
Yeah, I, I was uh, so struck by the thread that you wove all throughout history, um, but also by what you just talked about, uh, about the, um, because I, I think in, in times in my life where I'd seen evangelicals, um, of which I've, you know, been a white evangelical guy my entire life, um, or where I saw kind of fellow white evangelicals, specifically men, uh, doing things that seemed so in opposition to, to Christ, yeah. um, it felt like they're just afraid, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and you're right, the fear is real, but the, the source of the fear, yeah. um, when, we, when you strip it back, uh, is not necessarily a reality. The source yeah. of the fear is a lot of times fear mongered or stoked by people who want to continue to stay in power. And for a lot of folks in that world, um, losing elections uh, on a national stage is not all that bad. Right, because then you're actually able to double down on the fear mongering. You sell a lot more books after uh, Obama gets elected, yeah. right, than other times. Um, yeah. So that, and and you could see that even in the, the Trump election in 2016, where even as soon as like he he actually won, there was still like a, a persecution mentality of like, yeah, we won, but but they tried to cheat us, you know, yes. and then they're going to cheat us again. Um, and so th there was even even in victory stoking of the fear, which I think is fascinating. And that was Trump's brilliance here, right? You've got that exactly right, because historically, what we see is whenever Republicans are in the White House, that's really bad news for most evangelical organizations, um, right? Uh, political organizations. It's really hard to, to, to bring in the dollars when you don't have this panic. And it's harder to kind of gin up that panic when you have one of your own in, in the White House. But Trump was so brilliant in that even though so he won, even though he was in the White House, he used that platform to continually stoke fear and panic, right? And so, um, and, and that's why it's really hard to know what I'm asking, well, what comes next? I'm like, I don't know, because we're kind of in uncharted uncharted territory right now because he messed with the script. Right. And, uh, you know, and now that he's out of power, um, normally that's when, when uh, you know, these evangelical organizations flourish. But right now it's a little harder to tell because he did so well for them when he was in power. And now that he's out of power, they don't have that constant uh, kind of, you know, stoking of fear. And so, so it's interesting to try to figure out what happens next because history doesn't offer a clear guide right now. Oh, that's fascinating. So one of my huge takeaways from the book and that and was, was legit mind blowing for me. And, and once I opened my eyes to it, I just saw it everywhere, not just right now, but throughout my childhood. Um, was this whole idea of the evangelical marketplace. And you talked about the NAE forming, the National Association of Evangelicals, and they had this plan for magazines and, and bookstores and radio waves and television stations, I mean, eventually, and all that stuff. And, and they did it with unbelievable precision and brilliance and success. Um, and really that, at least in my opinion, after reading it, that is the primary way that the, the fear mongering takes place is through these, you know, dissemination of information. And so in the book, you say, you say this about the evangelical marketplace, say as a, as a diffuse movement, evangelicalism lacks clear institutional authority structures. Um, so it's not a denomination per se, things like that, but the evangelical marketplace itself helps define who is inside and who is outside the fold. And in addition, helps disseminate the information, helps to tell you what to believe, who to vote for, and what to be afraid of. And so could you talk just a little bit more about the power of this evangelical marketplace? Yeah, it is so hard to overestimate the power of the marketplace. And, you know, evangelicals 
know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and so my challenge was to introduce this to uh, readers who are not evangelical, who know nothing of this. Uh, in fact, my editor is one of those. And so uh, there was one point when I was uh, writing and I used the phrase, the evangelical subculture. And he crossed that out and said, I do not know what this is, like reword. <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough, fair enough, you know? And um, so, you know, we know what it is. It is, you know, how many of us uh, grew up in homes where Christian radio was on for several hours a day uh, or, you know, Christian television. How many of us went to youth groups where, you know, we went to see the latest Kirk Cameron film. Uh, we're reading Josh Harris's I Kiss G Dating Goodbye, right? You know, there's this vast literature uh, that really defines evangelicalism. And that's, that's what I say. I I'm pushing back against, uh, you know, remember back in graduate school, I decided not to become a religious and intellectual historian. Um, and, and so I'm pushing back against uh, tradition in religious and intellectual history that defines evangelicalism according to the theology, right? You know, so it's um, biblicism and conversionism and crucicentrism and activism. I'm like, no, you know, that's not really, that doesn't capture what we're really talking about in terms of modern white evangelicalism it's a it's a cultural movement and it should be defined not as you know who checks certain theological boxes because frankly a lot of evangelicals are theologically illiterate um and so if it's not really this um formal theology that defines evangelicalism what is it and i suggest it's how immersed you are within this evangelical subculture right um and so it's not um do you believe or, or not but how much have these values through this consumer culture formed you. Some people all in, right? Some people are totally immersed in this. Others might dip a toe here or there, right? And that's how we should think of evangelicals, not are you real or not? But um, you know, to what extent have you been formed by this consumer culture, which then shapes religious values, political values, and cultural values? Yes. Um, so, so that's what I'm talking about. And for those sorts of things, fiction, you know, Christian fiction is important. Christian nonfiction is important. Christian music, all of these things. And I think that's why this book has resonated so personally with so many evangelicals, because this is their evangelicalism, right? You know, I get, I get so many letters from evangelicals every day. Some of them will literally include pictures of their bookshelves that like contain all of the books that I'm talking about, you know, they're not reading formal theological treatises. That's not their evangelicalism. It's their encounter with this consumer culture. So as a scholar, I'm suggesting we need to take this consumer culture very seriously. And traditionally, historians have not, right? That seems kind of fluff. That seems incidental. Besides, many historians of evangelicalism have themselves been evangelicals. But they're the intellectuals, right? That's why they're they're literally intellectuals, and so their evangelicalism is honestly more the intellectual version. They may never have set foot in a Christian bookstore, um, but their wives probably have, right? And so, so that's kind of a you know what what is evangelicalism? And for me, I I really want to take this consumer culture seriously and then look at what values are being transmitted, cultivated through this popular culture over the course of many decades. Um, and so, yes, that's the, the popular evangelicals in this consumer culture really is at the heart of Jesus and John Wayne. 100%, yeah, and that, that was a huge takeaway for me and, and it, how heavily regulated that space is as well. Um, the, this very small number of people who make the ultimate decisions of who is allowed in those spaces and not. And 
and you, you see very quickly, um, my friend uh, Jonathan Merritt talks all about how the evangelical marketplace really created cancel culture, right? Uh, and, and you see how really quickly they are uh, to, to cancel someone. So you talk about Rachel Held Evans, you talk about Jen Hatmaker, um, and uh, you know, the, the moment they started having some questions around traditional uh, gender roles, um, even LGBTQ stuff, um, they were immediately stricken from Lifeway and, and any other Christian bookstores. Um, they, they couldn't speak at the Christian conferences anymore. They, they, you know, they, were, they were immediately moved outside. Um, and, and you actually saw the same thing happen with Eugene Peterson, right? He does this interview with Jonathan as an older guy. Jonathan asks him this like kind of one-off question at the end about, you know, would you do a same-sex wedding? He kind of thinks for a while and says, yeah. Um, and like the, ne I mean, the next day, Lifeway is like, if he doesn't retract, he's done. Uh, and, 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 you know, he wrote the message Bible, right? So they were going to take an entire Bible out yeah. of one of the most popular, you know, best-selling Bibles of the last two decades out yeah. of this Christian bookstore because there was a question about this kind of traditional gender role, traditional family stuff. And so th that, that part of it to me is so fascinating too. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And so to understand that, I mean, this is gatekeeping. This is you know, theological gatekeeping, but it's also, there is a ton of money involved. And so money is always, every time money changes hands, I just try to like note that in the book and, you know, put book sales and put, put numbers throughout this, because uh, this, this is how, kind of how this, this consumer culture works. Um, and, and it's related to fear too. Um, what, what I was talking about earlier, because it is in the interest of um, the um, evangelical publishers, right, distributors, and so on, to drive consumers to their products. So how do you do that? You say you stay away from those secular products. Do not consume secular media. Don't read Time and Newsweek. You need to read World Magazine. You need to read our versions of events, right? Don't read secular romance novels. <laughs> read our Christian romance novels. And um, there's a lot of that. That's what. That's how you control the messaging. On the one hand, right? You 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 continually you 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 can um, uh, reinforce this ideology in really brilliant ways through fiction, nonfiction, and so on. But it's also about money. You you are you are ensuring that your consumers stay loyal to you. And so it's both, right? It's controlling the message and it's making a ton of money. And that's why it's so hard to disrupt this too. Um, and for any writer, right? If Lifeway is not going to carry your books and you're a Christian writer, good luck trying to make a living. Yeah. Right. And so that's, that's really what we're up against. And we continue to be up against this today. And, you know, for those who are trying to disrupt these power structures, it is really hard to do so because you're going up against um, uh, you know, entrenched power and, and, and they know what they're doing. Yes, they really do. I, I remember growing up, um, we, you know, I, I have incredible parents, so this is not disparaging or anything, but, but we did a lot of boycotting, you know, when yeah. Dr. Dobson told us to boycott something. Yeah. We, yeah. You know, movies or, or television shows or, or whatever, and uh, and it's not like you know, it's not like you either watch this Disney movie um, or you don't watch a movie at all, right? To your point, it's like okay, you boycott the Disney movie. Here's the replacement movie yes. that you can buy from us. You exactly. Know? Um, yeah, and that's a that's fascinating. Okay, I've got one one question. I want to be respectful of your time. I could talk with you about this forever. Um, but I want to ask kind of a, a last question, um, and I'm going to actually read the way you end the book. Um, and can I ask a follow-up question? So the last couple of sentences go like this. Although the evangelical cult of masculinity stretches back decades, its emergence was never inevitable, which you talk about quite a bit. Over the years, it has been embraced, amplified, challenged, and resisted. Evangelical men themselves have promoted alternative models. You talked about 
promise keepers in the early days even, elevating gentleness and self-control, a commitment to peace and a divestment of power as expressions of authentic Christian manhood. Yet, understanding the catalyzing role militant Christian masculinity has played over the past half century is critical to understanding American evangelicalism today and the nation's fractured political landscape. Appreciating how this ideology developed over time is also essential for those who wish to dismantle it. What was once done might also be undone. And you leave us with that final sentence. So I'm just going to ask you for kind of everyday Christians, uh, many of which you would identify as evangelicals, even though they wouldn't necessarily identify with uh, some of the direction that you are describing um, and, and are interested in fighting against it, interested in being a part of dismantling it. How can we as individuals and we as a church like Restore be a part of helping undo these, this really damaging ideology of militant masculinity and moving people more toward authentic Christianity? Or to put it another way, how do we move away from John Wayne and toward Jesus? Yes. Oh, yeah, that last sentence in the book came very late in the writing process. Uh, it came um, just as we're it is about to go into production and thought we were pretty much good to go. And all of a sudden I get an email from my editor saying, um, so Kristen, this book is really depressing. Um, <laughs> and that conclusion is really depressing. And you can't leave your readers there. You need to give them something. And so I thought, okay, um, let me, let me see what I can do. And I just looked it over, thought it over. And I, I just, I wrote him and I said, I've got nothing. I feel as discouraged as you do. And I can't make anything up. And he said, okay, I respect that. And then about two days later, he writes back. He's like, Kristen, just give us something. <laughs> so he's like, you really can't leave your readers there. Um, but I was feeling incredibly discouraged, right? Because after sketching out this history, I realized how entrenched these powers are. And, and I, I didn't think they could change. Um, but I wanted to testify to them. I just wanted to hold it up and say, this is true. Yeah. Um, but then I, I gave him that last sentence. You know, it was once done, might also be undone. And it honestly, I was embarrassed to send it to him. I thought it was too feeble. But he said, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> and we're good. And it went into production. Um, but it's true. It is true, right? And what I've seen since this book has come out is that um, there are so many evangelicals who have participated in this culture, grown up in it, embraced these values for a very long time, who just didn't understand fully what they were doing. Um, again, I, I get letters. I received well over a thousand letters, I think at this point, since the book has come out, messages. Um, and, and almost all of them say, you know, this is the story of my life. And I never understood how all these pieces fit together and they acknowledge their complicity in it. Um, and, and history helps us to see that, right? It's one thing if you just debate, you know, this is, this is Christian masculinity. No, this is Christian masculinity. And you just reach an impasse very quickly. Um, but if you can see how this got made, right, who was doing what, in what moment, if you can see again, that things did not always used to be this way. And then, and then um, this person did made these choices for these reasons, usually to enhance his own power, right? And, and then this is cumulatively how we get to where we are now. Uh, and it is about gender and it is about race and it is very much about power. Uh, then that frees us to ask, is this where we want to be today? It frees us to ask, does this in fact, does this ideology, does this expression of the faith actually align with 
biblical Christianity? Does this align with the Jesus of the gospels? And, and my encouragement, my hope is that, um, many people are asking exactly that question right now. Now to get to your question, what do we do? It really depends on where you find yourself situated. You know, you are in a very good place because you are a church. You are a community that together is saying, this is not Christianity. And so you can be together in community and you can show another way and you can show your neighbors um, that there is a different way of being Christian, that you are following a different Christ, really, that you, you're the crisis. You understand Jesus of the gospels is a Christ who divests himself of power. And that's what it means to follow that Christ, right? You're not following this warrior Christ into battle, you know, wielding a bloody sword. Um, and so, so you are in a very good space and a much needed space because many evangelicals right now are feeling isolated and alienated in their churches, in their organizations, and they are feeling convicted. They understand that they have been complicit. They understand that they have benefited personally from, from some of these, um, power structures. Yeah. Um, some are feeling deeply wounded as well. Some have suffered the brunt of these, you know, in terms of abusive, uh, relationships, abusive cultures, but they are trapped. And, and what I've seen is it is incredibly difficult to be inside one of these institutions, organizations, and try to bring change from within. And so, you know, we have people like Beth Moore on the national stage who are leaving the SBC because she tried for years to bring reform from the inside and was just, you know, um, uh, finally said, this is not my home. Yeah. That is being, I'm, I'm hearing stories of that's being repeated across this country in local contexts. And the stories are, um, are, are brutal often. There's so much alienation. It's really hard to go up against even just local power structures. Um, I mean, I've tried and failed in my local communities. Um, and, and so I think there are a lot of people who feel homeless right now, who, who feel spiritually homeless, who feel discouraged and who feel powerless. Um, and so I think the real challenge is one, I mean, we need courage. Uh, we need courage because it can be very rough to speak out against um, these distortions or corruptions of Christianity in your local context. This divides families, it divides churches, right? It's and friends, it's it's hard. But for too long, too many evangelicals have stayed quiet. They've shown deference to authority, they wanted to protect the mission, they've they've just stayed quiet. And that is how we have gotten to this really difficult place that we find ourselves in. And the cost is to evangelicals, but the cost is also enormous to those outside the evangelical fold. Um, and so speaking truth is incredibly important, but it will often come with consequences. Uh, and so then we need spaces to find community, right? And to, to give each other strength, um, because I think that this is a time of disruption for the white church in particular. Uh, I would also say that many white Christians who feel like their whole kind of faith formation has been a lie. I hear a lot of, I, I get a lot of correspondence from people, including white evangelical leaders who say, what have I done? Um, and, and feel like, uh, you know, where do I go from here? And, and I wanna remind them that this crisis that we feel right now is, is largely a crisis of white evangelicalism. Um, other faith traditions are flourishing. Uh, you can, you know, white evangelicals have, have tended to build up 
um, walls and, um, and, and forget that Christianity is happening outside of white evangelical spaces. Uh, you know, the vibrant, um, uh, uh, black Christian traditions, prophetic Christianity, uh, immigrant communities. I attend a church that has a, an immigrant congregation, basic English service, you know, Christianity is, is doing just fine. Yeah. Um, and so it's not on you to save Christianity. I think right, evangelicals have for so long felt like this is on us. Uh, it's not, <laughs> so you can relax and you know, leave that to God. Uh, you know, God doesn't ask you to protect Christianity. Um, my favorite quote in the whole book is actually Rachel Den Hollander's quote, um, which is from the context of, um, you know, she was the first um, witness in the Larry Nassar's uh, sexual abuse case. Um, with USA Gymnastics, but um, she also then turned her attention to abuse in evangelical spaces. And she has this fabulous quote where, where she talks about the tendency to cover up, right? To stay silent, to um, protect the witness of the church. And, and she says, Jesus Christ does not need your protection, right? Jesus only asks for your obedience. And what does that look like? It looks like telling the truth, and pursuing justice. That's all that's asked of you. And, and so I love that. I consider that actually the moral center of, of Jesus and John Wayne as well. Oh, that's fantastic, Kristen. Thank you for that. I, I even needed that just to yeah. hear it myself. So I really appreciate it. Courage, creating safe spaces, and then realizing that it's not our job to be the savior of Christianity or, or anyone else that we are just called to obeying and following Jesus. That is so well put. Um, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for your incredible work on the book. Um, Kristen didn't talk about this a little bit you did, but it has cost you significantly as well as you have been cur courageous and created safe spaces and all of those things. Um, just we're connected on Twitter. So I, I see um, the various things that, that you endure. And so I want you to know that we, I am praying for you. Our church is praying for you. Um, and if there's ever anything we can do to support you, we want to do that. Um, but as we close, would you mind cl uh, praying and, and kind of praying for all the things we've been talking about and Christianity and us and all of that stuff? Great. Happy to do so. Thank you. Lord, thank you for uh, being with us in this space, for drawing us together and for your presence and for your faithfulness. I ask you uh, to bless each person uh, who is who is listening, uh, who is participating in uh, their time and space, that you give us courage, that you draw us to you, that you help us uh, to be uh, followers of Christ, that you, you give us the courage needed to be followers of a suffering servant, that we can turn the other cheek, that we can love our neighbors as ourselves, and that we can love our enemies, and that ultimately we look to you and not to what we do ourselves. Um, and thank you for the gift of your son, and thank you for the presence of your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Kristen, and um, I hope we can connect again soon. Thank you so much. All right.